Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My family came here when I was three from the former Soviet Union with nothing. They built this foundation for our family. And then my mom's unexpected illness really just, it's so devastating in so many ways. As I talk about it, I, I feel like I'm having an out-of-body experience. Sometimes I, I can't even believe that this is our story. By the time there was a vaccine, we were able to have him come to this place and see him all the time. But even that place was close to $11,000 a month and he was already on hospice. So I wasn't expecting that he was gonna be there for a really long time, but you don't know that. So what's your family's plan when it's, you know, 10 to $11,000 a month because you need certain level of care. You need a couple of aids to lift you or continence care or a complicated medical structure. So multiple pills, multiple times a day, all those things add up. When you have no choice but to become your parent's parent. The many medical, legal, and emotional pitfalls of elder care. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at FullDRadio. Joining me from Ashburn, Virginia, is Julia Pekarski Schneider. She and her extended family, I'm talking about in laws and her husband, it's affected her family across the board had to rally to take care of her mother who was declining from Alzheimer's. Since the young age of 57, she passed away in April of 2020. And in your own words, Julia, you say that the the system, from the healthcare system to to charities to long-term care, failed you at every step. Yes, Robin. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity to to tell our story. It's It's been quite a journey. Um, it's one of those things where you look back and you're like, I can't believe this is, this is my family's story. But my mom started declining around 2012 and was diagnosed with what they're calling younger onset Alzheimer's. In, in 2013, I was pregnant with our second child and we've had quite a journey. My dad moved several times in order to take care of my mom. My sister quit her job. And then around 2015, it got to the point where they could no longer take care of her in the home. And we moved her here to Northern Virginia where she entered long-term care. At the time, it was private pay because um, my parents had no long-term care insurance. My, they were too young, and we didn't qualify for Medicaid. Well, let's, let's, parse, yeah. let's parse this out. A lot of this is so unusual. Right. And interestingly enough, you have a, you have a master's in public health, Correct. as I understand. Correct. So a younger onset Alzheimer's, October 2013th was the diagnosis. Your mother was only 57, right. uh, Leonora Pekarski. Yes. Before that, if you had to reconnect with how you thought the world was, did you think that maybe Social Security or Medicare or disability would kick in? Because uh, I'm talking to people who left and right just are being blindsided by how frail the safety net is. Correct. Um, You just don't know what you don't know until things continue to like hit you every every step of the way. I feel like I got a master's in long-term care just a, along our journey. But yes, if you don't qualify for Medicaid, if you're not 65, you don't qualify for Medicare. If you don't meet certain disability and income standards, you don't qualify for Medicaid. For whatever reasons, my mom, because of her age or their income, she didn't qualify for any disability insurance she didn't qualify for Medicaid. So we entered um, private pay assisted living facilities. Um, there was one here in Ruston, Virginia that my mom went to and she was there for three years. At about $10,000 a month, you said, yep. since your parents are so young, this is all private pay. They have no long-term care insurance, 
no disability, no social security. And your Nothing. father, your father was forced to spend down his entire life savings, even though he's in his sixties. Correct. He had to stop working around the time my mom started to decline. So he was in his early sixties at the time. He hasn't worked since. He had to spend down you there's all this terminology, right? So he's the community spouse, according to Medicaid. And as a community spouse, you can only have a little over a hundred thousand dollars in your bank account to qualify for Medicaid. So my my father spent, I would say, close to half a million dollars for my mom's care. It's devastating. I mean, I know you you come from an immigrant family. My my family came here when I was three from the former Soviet Union with nothing. They built this foundation for our family. And then my mom's unexpected illness really just, it's so devastating in so many ways. As I talk about it, I, I feel like I'm having an out-of-body experience. Sometimes I, I can't even believe that this is our story. Well, here's what um, I don't understand. I mean, who is an advocate for a person like this? This seems to this is this is truly disabling. Your mother is yep. well ahead of retirement, is losing her faculties, declines rather quickly, mentally atrophy. And I'm struck in reading your essay that in addition to say ten thousand dollars a month, that would ultimately even you know escalated at twenty five dollars an hour for round the clock care, you'd be paying eighteen thousand dollars a month, bankrupting your father. But at the same time, bringing in the resources, the the man hours of you, your husband, your in-laws, using your husband's parents, anybody who could be a warm body who could watch your mother at the facility because there are peculiar reasons that even then Medicaid wouldn't pay for it if she wasn't right. supervised. Explain that to me. So I can sort of start from the beginning when my mom, when I first took my mom to her primary care physician. And this was back in 2013. I was very pregnant. My mom was exhibiting some very scary symptoms. We had not had her diagnosed yet. I had brought her to my home at the time in Springfield, Virginia. She was very disoriented, which is a clear sign of dementia, but we had not seen that before because this was the first time she had exhibited these symptoms. She tried to jump out of my car on 495 mm. as we drove back to Baltimore we went to her primary care and he took me out into the hallway and he said, your mom has Alzheimer's and I recommend that she no longer live with your father and sent me on my way crying hysterically, no resources. You know, there was, you know, I do a lot of community clinical linkages is the term we use in my public health world. There was no such linkage. There was no warm handoff to somebody in the community to be a navigator for us. You know, in the cancer world, they call them patient navigators or a community health worker. There's nothing like that. You're really on your own to navigate the system. So yes, there's, there's so many gaps. There's so many gaps. And then even when you're in a long-term care facility, it's really on you to get one of these coordinators. And that's, again, that's private pay. We did use one when my mom was in this private pay facility just to help us. We were in one we and we weren't happy there. And she helped us get into the second one where my mom was for three years. And then some of the other things that you're referring to was actually later on once we got on Medicaid and we were transferred to a Medicaid memory care facility. That's where even on Medicaid, they demanded that we provide 24-7 round-the-clock care for my mom because they felt like they couldn't manage her and Medicaid did not pay for that. So again, my father was forced to either pay or for us to provide literally 24-7 care for her on a memory care unit. Julie, when you were kind of, you know, scrambling with your family and your father to figure out the situation, let's let's go back to, you know, the mid-teens, right? 2014, 2015. Your father is an immigrant, you know, they're self-made. You came to this country when? I was three in 1981. In 1981, so let's say over the course of three decades, they were paying into a system, both Social Security and old age income and everything. And you would think inherent in that, you know, we might, might, might not look at our pay stubs, that right. that entails disability. There must be some sort of rainy day fund. Because after all, some of us can work well into our 80s and others have this really awful, you know, long tail situation. Yeah. Your your mother's decline at the age of 55, 56, 57. Um, yeah. Explain to me, as difficult as it is, the conversation with your father and the accounting of it and the, the difficult points of, you know, as I understand from your essay, 
you really have to go, you have to be very rich to afford adequate memory care. Or you have to be very poor to get the level Correct. of Medicaid. Explain that. Well, it's like you say, I mean, it's similar to like a lot of things in this country. It's always the middle class that, and I've said this many times that I feel like kind of gets left behind because most people who are in this situation, right, are are much older and their spouses much older or, you know, so this concept, this is a concept, this is terminology, spend down. Like I find that so awful. And what people do is they spend down, they spend down their entire life savings to get on Medicaid. Like it's, it's just the whole thing is twisted. You know, the system should have kicked in for my mom. Some, something should have come out of the system to say, this is somebody who's so young, but has, has a spouse who should still be in the workforce. And I know there's a lot of talk about and legislation kind of coming forth, like to do more for caretakers, whether it's end of life or even for moms who stay home. I haven't been following it as closely as maybe I should have, but this concept of a caretaker, there's so much more that this country could be doing because so many people leave the workforce to take care of a parent, to take care of a child. Uh, talk to me about uh, the private insurance that they did have and what the shortcomings were. Or at some point, I don't understand this. Something like this, before she's eligible for Medicare, does it count as a pre-existing condition? Is it prohibitively difficult to get her the level of private health insurance that would get her adequate memory care, primary care physicians, home health care? Explain that. So Robin, from my understanding... This, these are separate things. You know, your health insurance does not cover long-term care. It has literally nothing to do with it. So my parents were probably on, I don't know, Anthem or Blue Cross, you know, whatever they had. This has nothing to do with it. The only way that somebody would have a safety net is through long-term care insurance. So I'm assuming maybe your parents, you know, your in-laws have probably now that they're in their 60s or their 70s have started to pay into long-term care insurance. My parents in their 50s wouldn't it wasn't even yeah, on their so radar. Yeah, ex- so explain that yeah. for me. This isn't this isn't long-term care. The fact that this happened to your mother in the mid 50s. Right. And again, I'm not I'm not well versed in this. Shouldn't health insurance have something to do with it? Her no. her memory is declining. It's amyloid proteins, plaque, whatever you call it in the brain. The brain is excluded from this? A neurodegenerative Correct. disease? Correct. So I have a friend, for example, whose mom was in a very similar situation, but her, the father, the the spouse, he was a financial planner. He just, I think they started paying into long-term care insurance at a very young age. And so her mother was fully paid for when she went into a facility because they had long-term care insurance. And from what I've heard and and understand, even long-term care insurance doesn't cover the full cost of, let's say, that ten to $12,000 a month that you're paying in a facility. I just want to preface this with I'm not an expert on the, <laughs> on this. I'm just, I'm just talking to you from my own sort of experience and from my perspective. Like I, I am in no way an expert on long-term care insurance. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Julia Pikarski-Schneider. She lives in Ashburn, Virginia. She documents the decline of her mother, Leonora Pikarski, who died in the spring of 2020 after suffering for more than seven years of early-onset Alzheimer's. Uh, It started, she was diagnosed just at the age of 57. Uh, Julia, who did you seek out help from? Who did you try to share? I mean, as you had this baptism by fire, learning on the fly, you are very well connected, well informed. I know your husband Gabe is a kind of guy who likes to put <laughs> spread- spreadsheets with decision trees and options and everything together. I understand that you reached out to no shortage of people out there as as allies and advocates. Yes, um, and that was quite a journey on an all on its own. And I have to say, it was all self motivated. Like nobody really came to my rescue. When we moved my mom into the Medicaid facility, they demanded that we provide round the clock care because my mom was very ambulatory. She, a lot of patients tend to be wheelchair bound. My mother would walk and walk and walk and walk eight, nine hours a day, but she was also sort of losing the ability to 
to see and to walk around safely. So she would bump into things. She had a really bad fall just a couple of weeks on that unit because they didn't have a good walking space. She fell over kind of like this mini nursing station and ended up with a bruise on her face. And they wanted to prevent her from falling again. So her re- their resolution for that was to demand us to be there 24-7 warm handoff. They wouldn't even watch her for a minute if one of us was on our way there. They said, your aide has to do a warm handoff to your family and vice versa. So I started to seek out um, help. I reached out to what they call a long-term care ombudsman mm. through Fairfax County. And so that person helped me document my journey they don't have any ability to tell the nursing home what to do. The nursing home, from my perspective, really has complete control over your family. Our family had no control over this situation. I reached out to everybody. We had a what they call a social services specialist that's there with you once you transfer to a Medicaid facility. But once you're quote-unquote settled after three months, they have to close the case. So she was like, okay, well, you're settled. I'm like, no, we're not settled. They're demanding us to be here 24-7. We have no life. And yet they're charging Medicaid for my mom to be on this unit. And so for you guys to be there 24-7, that's not an exaggeration. You literally had to split time with your husband. Your husband had to call in his his parents from, uh, what, another state? Correct. So my Yes. So my we had to find AIDS, again, out of pocket. Medicaid does not pay for one-on-one care, whether it's demanded by the nursing home or if it's something the family wants. And I can talk a little bit more about that. And so we, my mother-in-law lives in Olney, Maryland, which is about an hour. And for those people who live in the DMV area, traffic around here is awful. So my mother-in-law would drive. God bless her. She's 70 years old, but she happens, you know, she's a hospice nurse and she would walk around the nursing home with my mom for, you know, seven, eight hours until our aide came or until I came and my sister would come down from Pennsylvania. My dad would go. My husband would get up at six in the morning and go before work. It was nothing short of an of a nightmare. I can name some other people that I reached out to. No, but to. I think, Julia, it's, it's also underscores, and I don't think it's cliche, the sandwich generation, that oh, the same yeah. time that you're pregnant and you have a you have a young son and everything. These are these are true man hours. There's an opportunity mm-hmm. cost. If your husband has to be there at six in the morning, this is assuming somebody else has to pick up, has to do drop mm-hmm. off, has to do breakfast. Somebody has to worry about daycare, maybe after school. The opportunity cost of your mother-in-law being there as a hospice nurse. Those are real hours. Those are that's yeah. time. You know, in addition to the private drawdown, which I I think is a awful kind of euphemism to yeah. use in this and you know bankruptcy and and medicaid and everything this completely took the entire family down correct i mean the bright side i would say is that everybody just rallied and you know no one complained and I, i'm grateful for my husband and his family you know i'm sure in a lot of these situations things completely fall apart and and people get divorced and etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know, I'm I'm so grateful. You, know, my sister, my dad, and I are like a rock solid team through all this. We made it happen. But yeah, this was just unbelievable. And in the meantime, not only am I working a full time job, I'm spending close to twenty hours a week advocating and emailing and calling everybody from the Coordinated Care Plus advocates, the Alzheimer's Association the person who runs the Department of Aging and Rehabilitative Services of Virginia, everybody. And it's shocking to me. Nobody had a resolution. Literally, the person at the Medicaid office for Virginia, quote, you fall through the cracks. Hmm. Having said all this, Julia, you know, you said there are other ways that you can honor your mother, Leonora, right now. And I think telling this story as difficult as it is, I mean, what would you say to people out there who are unsuspecting of this? I have other friends um, whose parents have declined and it's blindsided them and it's forced everyone in the family to kind of have an all hands geographic and financial. Everybody has their own idiosyncratic situation, but are there certain things that you wrote down kind of parenthetically that you wish that the rest of the world would know? I mean, I think our situation might be un- unique. I mean, all of these factors just sort of 
I hope nobody has to experience what we experienced given that my mom was so young. My parents didn't have long-term care insurance. My mom walked for many hours a day, which was very challenging for these facilities. So it was like everything, all of these little things continue to add up. So my advice is, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's expect the unexpected and also like bring your community together and let people help you when they want to help you. You know, my friends wanted to do a GoFundMe for me. I really resisted it. I didn't want to put that out there to the universe mm. that this was happening, but I was like, you know what? Fine. Just do it. And they, they put one out on Facebook and we raised $7,000, which sadly, was like a drop in the bucket, but mm. I'm grateful. So bring your community together, advocate for yourself, reach out to your local ombudsman. I didn't even know that existed until things really got bad and really just educate yourself. I mean, whatever that means. And, you know, even though these coordinators are out of pocket, it, it's worth it. And until the system really provides that support to families once they leave the doctor's office. Um, unfortunately, you know, you really have to be your own best advocate, not only for your the patient, but for your entire family. What have you learned about long-term care insurance? I mean, I, from my understanding, this has been a disaster for the insurance industry. It was wildly uh, mispriced over the past 20, 30 years where people were paying in kind of premiums that they underestimated the extent of the cost, the extent of the use, the extent of the, I hate to say it again, the drawdown. And right. it's 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 just now prohibitively difficult for a lot of people in their 40s and 50s to afford uh, with very li little visibility that it would truly cover you in a, in a nightmare situation of what kind you had. And Robin, this is where my knowledge sort of is, is, is there's a gap because my parents didn't have long-term care insurance. So actually I wouldn't be able to speak to this. I can speak more on the Medicaid side and, and sort of Tell the us about Medicaid. Yeah. About Medicaid. Right. Specifically. So I, I would say that on the Medicaid side, once your, once your loved one goes into a facility, you know, don't be fooled that, you know, everything is going to work out and you're, you know, you're just there to visit and hang out with your loved one. I would say that it it is almost a full-time job even when they're there. So for example, once the facility demanded that we be there around the clock, and that's unusual. I think mostly they sometimes ask for an aide to be there at night to make sure that your loved one doesn't fall out of the bed, or maybe during the day they ask for a few hours. But even if the nursing home asks for for a one-on-one, -on -one, what they which is what they call it, um, that comes out of your pocket. Medicaid po policy and there's basically one or two sentences that was sent to me says that Medicaid does not cover a one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. If I was to go back into advocating, because I did advocate for a long time through the Alzheimer's Association, but I I had to stop for my own my own health. I would advocate that would be my one piece of like my my one sentence that I would want to expand because I think there needs to be a lot more detail under that where it says Medicaid will pay for it if a one-on-one -on -one is demanded by the nursing home in in order to ensure the safety of the patient because you're on Medicaid and it should not fall on the family to then also have to pay for that nursing home to be able to manage your loved one. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot that I think needs to be done on the Medicaid side. The other thing that was completely shocking to us is that your, the nursing home can transfer your loved one anywhere in the state if they want to. If they deem your loved one unsafe on their unit and they can quote unquote find another facility, they can transfer them anywhere. They ended up literally patient dumping my mother into a nursing home in Arlington after deeming her unsafe because we said we could no longer afford to provide one-on-one. -on -one. They literally just transferred her to another facility and said that they were justified because they said this facility was safe. It was the same type of setting. Um, when I asked this facility why my mom didn't have a bed, they said they didn't know my mom was coming. And so technically that's patient dumping. So there's a there's just a lot. There's a lot that you lose control. You lose a lot of control of your of your loved one once they go into long-term care. Julie, I know this was incredibly difficult for you, but I I thank you for sharing the story again for everybody. Julia 
Pekarsky Schneider's uh, mother, Leonora, was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's at the young age of 57. This is back in 2013 and proceeded to decline in so many different ways until her passing in, in April of 2020. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. And thank you, Robin. I really appreciate it. I tried so hard to get my story out. Um, and so this, this means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from suburban Washington, D.C. is Kitty Isley, NPR veteran. Uh, she won an Emmy for the famous documentary series, The Civil War, with uh, Ken Burns on PBS. She's taught at Georgetown as a fellow of the Neiman Foundation. Most recently and most poignantly, she commandeered and hosted and divulged uh, so much in the podcast series, Demented, When You Become Your Parents' Parent. Uh, how are you? I think I'm still kind of tired from that whole experience, and I wouldn't change it for anything. But man, it really, it it sends you to another land, Take becoming a full-time caregiver. Let me read the intro from uh, the landing site at Te Texas Public Radio, and I urge all of you to listen to this uh, series. I believe there are five episodes up now. There are five, and they're rather they're short. Five, yeah. And then we've got season yeah. two starts in about a month and a half. What happens when you become your parent's parent? That's what longtime NPR journalist Kitty Isley had to figure out when she became a full-time caregiver for her dad. After moving back to her childhood home, she finds herself bewildered by the medical, legal, and emotional challenges of elder care to say nothing of the time her dad headed out on a 300-mile road trip without telling her. Kitty manages doctor's appointments and hospital stays, finds outpatient and assisted living options, and tries to keep her beloved dad safe and secure, all while figuring out how to pay for everything in a country that doesn't offer much support. Uh, it's always difficult, Kitty, you know, um, for, I guess, a radio journalist to interview a fellow radio journalist, a decorated radio journalist, one who would, you know, uh, block your metaphors and catch you on all these production oh, gaps and everything. <laughs> but I want to go back as a, as, as a son with a struggling father right now and get to that moment of crystallization when you were both in a state of grief and mourning what had happened to your father, who had lost his wife, I think, two years earlier to that. And I guess the service journalism side of you kicked in and said, you know what, I need to document this, if not just for myself, then for the entire world to understand what goes on. You know, it actually started even before the the death of my mom in 2013 was the first time I think I recognized that I was going to have some serious responsibility for my parents. Um, not financially, because they were very prudent and took care of their futures. And that was a real gift to my sister and myself. But both my parents in 2013 had bad falls and ended up in the ICU within a month of each other. And my dad with a very severe brain bleed. He was on blood thinner and caused a lot of problems. And so in both cases, they were not able to come home and resume their lives normally. Mm. My dad had a lot of memory loss and problems for a month and a half. My mother ended up going to a rehab center for maybe 10 or 12 weeks to learn to walk again, get her balance back, all of that. So pretty much overnight, I realized I may have to be making choices for them and decisions involving care for two people who just last week were, you know, fine doing volunteer work in the community, commuting downtown, things like that. And it can happen very suddenly. Um, now, was, was anything said about in terms of durable power of attorney, or do you have siblings, or were these things discussed beforehand ever? You know, yes and no. Um, Honestly, after 9-11, my parents were doing a lot of traveling in the following year, and they did a lot of planning and let us know where documents were, where the will was, mm. what the final wishes and all that were. Um, but it was after my mom died that my dad's financial planner sat down with my dad, came by once a year really, and said, one of your daughters, of the two daughters you have, one needs power of attorney because your wife's no longer here. And we were really fortunate because we got that paperwork done. And about six months later, my dad had to go in the hospital for his heart failure, and he almost died. And he was there for three weeks. And because we had power of attorney, I was able to work with his financial guy to just move some money around so that we could set up a place to take care of him afterwards and understand what the resources were. And it made a massive difference in peace of mind in a really critical time where nothing else was normal. Kitty, what did you and your sister think back in the day that, you know, your father was a decorated journalist in Washington, D.C. He helped establish The Hill uh, publication. 
that all of this stuff was kind of amorphously set aside somewhere, that there would be a fund to take care of it and, and various other fiduciaries that would take care of this? No, I think um, my dad had wanted to take care of things for my mom and always, you know, honey, we're all we're in good shape, you know, don't worry about us. But it was because of his hospitalization and the fact that the financial planners as broker had actually kind of talked to him about making sure his daughters understood what what was available. And it's an uncomfortable conversation for most parents to have with their kids. It's not something they're going to go, hey, let's look at our checking account and our savings and disclose that. I think parents still want to be parents. And so that didn't happen immediately. I did know what a certain chunk of their savings was and how to access that because of the power of attorney when we needed to. But I don't think I understood kind of what the resources were until much later, until my father came out of the hospital and then out of a rehab period. Um, and slowly, I think he recognized his daughters needed to understand hmm. what was available. And we pushed on that because, you know, when you're in an emergency situation, how do you choose? Should you have him in an institution afterwards? Should you hire someone? Can you hire someone 24-7? Are you going to run out of money? Can he live safely in his own home? All those questions, it's helpful to know what you're playing with because elder care, I want to say it's it's phenomenally expensive. There's a reason it's so expensive. The the tasks and the requirements to make sure someone's safe are huge, but it's much more than most of us have set aside. So I want people to understand kind of this is something you want to start thinking about a little bit with your parents, maybe not a financial conversation, but a conversation, especially over the holidays. We've seen COVID disrupt people's lives massively. Hmm. What would, you know, if something happened to you where you couldn't take care of yourself, what would you want us to do? to make sure you're safe and happy. I think I would come at that question in a soft way. Kitty, tell me about the house, uh, because there's a lot of sentimentality there. You you decamped back to the house, I guess, right. since 2018, in your childhood bedroom right. to take care of your father. The house is beautiful. The house is comforting. The house is where he would much rather have been versus memory care or an assisted living facility. But the house is also perilous, as you describe, you know, just deciding to go up and pick up some sticks in the backyard and slipping on the grass the house, is something yeah. that can re re result in, in fractures. And, and there's all that money tied up in the house as well. Exactly. And uh, you say the house is lovely. It, it's a small suburban house in Virginia. It is nothing big. It's just that it's 80 years old. And so lots of things in the house are 80 years old. And in a very wooded neighborhood that my dad loves and has you know planted azaleas everywhere, but in one respect, we're lucky. It's mostly on one story, although laundry's in the basement. And for him, going up and down the stairs was becoming an issue. The house itself, maybe not as strong a character as I wanted it to be, but the house is always something that we had to deal with sure. in terms of his care. We, When you know he spent the last six months unable to walk. So moving a wheelchair through a house that couldn't get through narrow doorways. For an old house, the doorways are going to be narrow. Doing things like having, well, enough electricity to run some of the machines he needed at certain points, we would, you know, short out on things because something wasn't grounded or it was in an old room that had only a two-prong outlet. Silly things you don't even know. And he was always really of good cheer about it, but I always felt sort of, and still do feel, a little like, well, this house was good enough for a family of four and I should be taking care of it. And it's hard to do that. I mean, we had, you know, they're calculations you make. The furnace went out, so we had to replace a furnace and an air conditioning thing for, I don't know, $14,000. But there wasn't a choice. He It was cold and he was, you know. But your dad, your dad wanted to be in this house. And that's where, where a lot of us are realizing uh, mental health is not really ancillary. It's essential after your mom passed away. And, you know, it's, you couldn't just chalk it up to congestive heart failure and the other things. He was, he was a bit lost. That's such a good way to put it. And the house... And the house grounded him, and the the house was a non-negotiable thing. I mean, he would have he you could have he could have declined even in in a worse way if he was in a facility. But then that pushed the bottleneck of care to you. And so I want to understand how much you had to bone up on uh, finance and operations, and you know, uh, door width, and and all of these various things that you you kind of had to learn on the fly. I think you learn them on the fly more than boning up on them. That's for sure. Um, and you've. So you just had a phrase that just escapes me, but it was quite lovely about how he wanted to be here. What I came to as I was, you know, frantically kind of trying to get my hands around this and reading a lot about, honestly, death and dying to understand what someone in the very last stages of their life, how we should treat them. How can I help him? 
And Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, talks about, you know, really thinking about what's going to make someone happy. And we have a fantastic assisted living place in our town. Amazing. And he stayed there for a while on a couple of different occasions. But what really wanted, what he wanted was to be in his house, looking at his azaleas. And what I understood was, you know, he'd lived here more than 50 years. And so suddenly when you're not feeling well, when your mind isn't working sharply, all of a sudden you have, we are asking you to literally move into a dorm and have your meals with strangers every day. And I just couldn't see doing that to him, especially when he was already so frail. I was like, why would anybody want to do that? He doesn't need to be in a full-time care facility. But what about you, Kitty? I mean, you were, I think, at NPR when we met. Uh, I learned about all this because you documented it on Twitter. It was very kind of real-time. I've sought your advice for various you know, NPR vagaries and, and public radio startup stuff and content stuff. But learn this about you and through mutual friends, you you really, it, it became your entire life. It really did. And I think I'm still kind of coming out of that or coming back from that. Um, something as silly as learning how to give my dad a shave. I mean, how many people think that that's ever going to be part of their lives? Certainly not a daughter to a father. It didn't happen a lot, but it did happen at one period where he was hospitalized and, and just needed to be cleaned up and we couldn't get anyone to help us. Um we had ended up hiring a caregiver in the house and she did a lot of the personal grooming, but I had to sort of plan for it. Okay, can he have this? Does he need a different kind of toothbrush? His skin's having problems, so we need to get this other kind of skin lotion or he can't be in this kind of shirt because it's causing distress in some way. Yes, I had to punt a lot. And these are small things you don't even realize. You're just like, oh, wait a minute. I've been reading up on dementia lately and learning that a lot of the things that were causing problems were consequence of brain loss, of, of dementia, where balance was a huge deal for him. So he did something that the care folks told me is really common, furniture surfing. Walked across the house holding on to the tops of chairs and furniture just to mm. steady himself. And I remember coming home one time thinking, God, the furniture's so grimy. What? It's like, you know, Santa Claus in a soot boots has like stomped all over our furniture. Why are, Why is everything so dirty? It's simply he couldn't balance. Um, a lot of that happens, you know, people joke about how old persons smell in a house. Well, for my dad, his own sense of smell was going. He was cold mm. a lot, no body fats. You're heating the house a lot. There are just certain things that are going on you don't even recognize you need to understand. So giving him blood pressure tests. In fact, I had to at some at one point, because of COVID, do a blood test, a finger prick every week or every few days that involved taking his blood and figuring out the sending measurements into the doctor about whether his blood was thin enough or whatever his blood thinner was mm. working. I'm not giving you the best answer because I feel like there were so many instances. I think what many caregivers may find is that there are a lot of emergencies and you can't really tell at the outset if it's going to be a huge emergency or just sort of a nuisance because someone isn't able to tell you themselves. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Kitty Isley. She documented becoming a, a <laughs> what happened when you become your parents' parent, taking care of her father in the final couple of years of his life as he suffered from dementia and and physical atrophy and whatnot. You can listen to it on Texas Public Radio, a highly recommended podcast. Uh, I got to ask you, I'm looking at life statistics, you know, uh, life expectancy stats since 1900. You know, if you take it back, this is not incidental stuff. You're talking about you know, life expectancy at birth back in 1900 for both sexes, closer to 48 years of age. And at 2021, we're closer to 80 years of age. And this is one of the great, you know, fruits of technology and medicine and vaccinations and whatnot. But it also comes with things such as early onset dementia or things more mundane, such as an enlarged prostate, which you might have to deal with a uh, a parent and and undergarments and various things. And I'm struck, I know this is a long-winded way of saying this, that this has even blindsided the insurance industry, Kitty. I look at how the long-term care industry has done it. It has chalked up massive uh, losses. You look at a company like Genworth or other insurance providers that were selling this stuff to baby boomers, and they vastly underestimated how costly it would be. 
you nailed it. And to take it back, I mean, I, I kind of come down to like, there are four factors that go into this kind of what I, I don't want to call it a crisis, but there are over 50 million Americans right now providing unpaid care for someone over 50. So that's like a sixth of the population is doing this. And it's all kind of behind closed doors. You don't know it. It's in their houses or in institutions. But take the age change, take the um, lifespan We've almost doubled in 100 years. So that's never happened in human history. We now have nearly double the length of life. While we have fewer children, we usually live farther away from each other, in this country at least, and we live longer with more difficult problems that we can kind of manage but maybe not overcome. So on both sides, you have a caregiving deficit or not enough people to kind of provide that kind of care and people who need more care for longer. And as you say, the insurance industry just wasn't wasn't planning on that. Um, so as a nation, I feel so strongly we have got to ask ourselves how much, how can we care for the people we love? It's on the continuum with childcare. But it's interesting. It's interesting, Kitty, in that, that sociologists tell you that Medicare and Social Security are these third rails. They're inviolate. If you do anything to them, older people who vote, you know, I'm thinking about the, the representative mm-hmm. Claude Pepper in Florida, the late great Claude Pepper. But young people, you know, if you Think about SNAP benefits and benefits for hungry kids and, and milk and school lunches. Those things are are always jeopardized. Why hasn't that carried over to kind of late stage, almost hospice care, long-term care insurance? Or, or, or if you can explain for me how it even works with Medicare and Social Security. This is a great question, and most of us don't know until we kind of are confronted with it. There's no coverage for any long-term care. Medicare is basically your medical insurance after 65. No one is going to pay except your family to care for Mm. someone who can't care for themselves. That's all on you individually, unless your family and your loved one has less than $2,000 in the bank. So we've kind of said, you know, to ourselves without being really honest about it, we expect you to become almost a ward of the state to have less than $2,000 to your name when you're at your most frail and feeble. And then we'll provide some Medicaid housing for you, some care spaces if we have enough. So we've never come to terms with the fact that people live longer with less health and often need more help, especially with the levels of dementia and Alzheimer's that we're seeing. That's not something that anything in the government covers. So I think people get a big wake-up call when they discover that a parent might not be able to live on their own or need way more help in a house, and you don't know how long it's going to go for. That's the scary part. I mean, you asked about the finances. We, We had my dad at home, you know, all through COVID. And my goal was to keep him safe from a very traumatic end. And we were able to. And in the last couple of months of his life, we did have him move to the facility in our town because he couldn't walk and he couldn't stand. And we'd been lifting him and carrying him for six months. And that just, myself and our caregiver just kind of took us, you know, bowled us over. By the time there was a vaccine, we were able to have him come to this place and see him all the time. But even that place was close to $11,000 a month. And he was already on hospice, so I wasn't expecting that he was going to be there for a really long time. But you don't know that. So what's your family's plan when it's you know ten to eleven thousand dollars a month because you need certain level of care? You need a couple of aids to lift you, or continence care, or a complicated medical structure. So multiple pills, multiple times a day. All those things add up. And I am profoundly grateful to the caregivers at that place. I mean, I cannot say enough about the difference between people who are, I think, paid decently and provide, put themselves on the line for your loved ones. That should be a standard. But most people working in care, we've outsourced it to Mm. immigrants and women of color, and their average pay is $11 an hour. That's less than Starbucks, Chipotle, McDonald's, Pizza Hut. But these are the people you care most about in your life, the people who brought you up for the most part. Why would you want to stiff the people that are taking care of them? And yet most people don't have those kind of assets put aside because none of us were expecting to be paying, you know, $150,000 a year for our old age. Kitty, I was thinking about you and moments where you needed to take a breath and certainly could lean on some of these valued caregivers to maybe go out and get a coffee or or take a run or or I, I don't know how you do <laughs> I didn't run. I should have, but... <laughs> 
But here's it, you know, it's like a, it's like when you're in the plane, and if if there's an emergency in the plane, they tell you to put the mask on first before you help the person next to you. You need to be strong to be present for your father and to be a fiduciary and to be mindful of of uh, medical indications and titrations and everything. How did you take care of you? Not very well, to be really honest. Um, and I. I'm really wondering, like, did I damage my health? I gained a lot of weight. My hair fell out. That kind of stuff. That's cosmetic. But I didn't really want to do a whole lot of exercise and the kinds of things that the self-help books tell you. You know, one thing I did do was take vacations. And I would line it up with my sister who had a pretty demanding job and two young kids and our caregivers. So I would say, I have got to get away from this for a week, even during COVID, and just go to a beach place and read books not be around people that I could be infected by, but simply not have that duty on my head or on my back. And by duty, this requires, you end up kind of becoming hypervigilant. You know, every time you hear a a clink or a, a bump, that could be my dad falling out of his chair, dropping something on his foot, banging, you know, banging a lamp over. I mean, his falls were pretty spectacular and pretty consistent. So there's a sense that you're always kind of on alert. Maybe the way a very new parent would feel. And for me, getting that under control was to just step away and save some money and go for a week. And I think I went twice to the beach in the last year, you know, for a week at a time just to breathe. I even checked into a hotel one weekend. Like I literally said, I have got to just, I need like the care, I can, I need some assistance in living. (laughs) I would have happily moved into the place he was staying at at the end, because they did such a good job. And that is a caregiver. I think that's going to be a real issue. You don't know what people are doing to keep things together behind their own family homes. And that's why I think we don't know that 50 million people are doing this. Kitty, when is it going to hit the tripwire of kind of true national emergency? Not to short shrift your experience at all, but you know, you keep hearing about these waves of baby boomers and and Gen X, frankly. I mean, I'm learning this now with my father who had a fall or after, you know, very shortly after he realized he did, he wasn't driving or he left his job and he's, you know, in his mid 80s that his legs just weren't working as well. He mm-hmm. had a fall on the way to the grocery store and I had to scramble with my family and with my brother to figure out how to get him the care he needed and how to not have my mom feel excluded. I mean, this is nowhere near the trauma you faced, but this is increasingly a conversation I'm having with my Gen X contemporaries. And it's going to hit a point where it becomes a true kind of national crisis where people realize that, no, there isn't another line item in Medicare for this. You know, I've been asking myself that too, because I think this is on a continuum with the childcare. We don't, as a country, I think we've always assumed that care is something that happens personally usually done by women, usually done in the home, and therefore not paid. And these are levels of need and care that we haven't seen before. So you're seeing a lot more young women in the 30s, I'd say in their 30s, who are writing and and advocating and demonstrating about the need for better childcare resources, especially after what we've seen happen with COVID, where everybody's got a school from home. This is on the same continuum. It's do we care for the people at the beginning and end of their lives when they can't take care of themselves? That's a Hubert Humphrey litmus test for what government does. And that's the test of a good and moral government. Otherwise, why are we a society if we can't help one another? So when you ask what's the tipping point, I guess we need to ask ourselves, how are we holding our elected officials accountable? I'm not so worried about what's in the defense budget. I am worried that there are enough caregivers trained, that they're well paid, and that there will be that generation available should I need help, and that we can all count on some help from each other and from our government, because this is not something that any family can take on by itself. And it's not a one-to-one thing. I think a lot of people could handle, I've used this example before, but try to park a toddler in a car seat. And, you know, kid can flip around, but eventually you can get him, get him buckled in. Now try that with a 180-pound person that you have to lift multiple times a day. It's much more dangerous for both of you. And usually for the caregivers, if they're hired, they're very frequently women who are much smaller. And it's Mm. a very dangerous occupation. So it's not as if one person can just be the full-time caregiver for an older adult. It's it's a very different um, physical experience as well as a very different emotional experience. What I would like is for us to ask, to really ask, like... Everyone says, you know, if there's a burning house, you'd rescue your loved ones. So how are we going to make sure that they're 
safe and comfortable and we don't all have to kind of leave our jobs or go part-time or go into debt in order to take care of them. And that's something I think we have to say is a collective choice. It's a it's a political choice on all of our behalf, not a personal problem that each of us needs to solve by ourselves at home. Kitty, how how aren't there torchbearers for this in DC more prominently or the AARP? You know, I asked or, somebody you know, that. Bob Bob Dole just passed away, the Americans with Disabilities Act, but how come I've I've so rarely heard about it, but increasingly anecdotally through friends and family. You know, I was just asking a big advocate about that, about why there I said who's in Congress that I would call and ask about this? Who's got their finger on elder care issues? And he said not a lot of people because frankly they haven't been able to get much legislation passed, so it's often um slightly defeated before it gets introduced. Look how hard it is to just get Build Back Better passed. Right, um, right. So elder care issues or family care issues tend to take short shrift unless you can make a real political case that affect everyone. I think with Bob Dole's work on the Americans with Disabilities Act, a great example of saying this affects all of us and we should be a better society by making sure everyone's included. I think this is an analogy. I'm not sure it's the correct one, but with the AIDS crisis, you know, of 30 years ago, everyone knew or discovered they knew someone in their family who was gay. And suddenly it was not a taboo and a stigma. I mean, it's the quickest political change of heart that we've seen on just about any social issue. So suddenly it was about including everyone and making sure they were cared for. And, you know, look what's happened in 30 years. I wonder if we can't find that political will to campaign on behalf of our elders. And also not to call it something where it's like an entitlement. That's That language always bothers me. These are people who've worked and contributed and paid taxes and raised families and made our country strong. Why wouldn't we want to make sure that they're safe and secure and, and comforted and loved at the, at the lowest, weakest point in their lives? We can do it. We just have to decide that we're going to hold legislators accountable and say we're voting on this. Kitty Isley veteran public media storyteller. You know her from NPR, and she won an Emmy for Ken Burns' Civil War documentary series. What was it, 30 years ago already on PBS? I can't thank you enough. The podcast is called Demented, When You Become Your Parent's Parent, and you can listen to it on Texas Public Radio, NPR One, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Please, please come back on. It's a pleasure, and thank you so much. I also want to add, and maybe you can cut this in, um, we're growing it for the next season. And we're going to come up with a new new title to sort of acknowledge all of the people. My experience was the first season. Now we're asking other people what their caregiving experience is. So we're calling it 24-7, The Caregiver Diaries. That's great. Kitty Isley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks this week to Claire Morgan at Notterly, this show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link full D Radio. Com. And I'm finally uh, glad to tell you that we are coming to NPR member station, Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio across the great state of Virginia and Richmond, Charlottesville, Roanoke, and beyond. Holler if you too would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>